0: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Regulatory reveal Beijing warns it could be tough on tech until 2025. Crypto conscience, the Poly Network hackers return lots of the loot. And Twitter tension, the social giant sparks a political row after blocking India's opposition. It's Thursday, let's make a move. truly warm welcome to First Move today. Fans sir, stick to have you with us on a thermometer-busting summer Thursday. A perfect day, too, for the First Move hot list topped by sizzling stocks. The Dow and the S&P 500 all at all-time highs. Europe also near records, too, on hopes of for spicy new fiscal stimulus. Peacock profits, too. Some 90% of S&P 500 companies beating Q2 estimates, with Disney delivering theirs later on after the closing bell. And beware of stifling hot Chinese regulation, too. Beijing announcing that its regulatory crackdown could simmer for the next five years. Fire alarm inflation fears, too. U.S. consumer inflation rising well above Fed targets in July, albeit with some tantalising transitory hints, of course. That was earlier this week. Well, this morning, producer price numbers are fresh out of the oven and coming in very hot too, up a blistering 7.8% in July and 1% month over month. Both numbers coming in above estimates. Let's take a look at futures and the reaction that we're seeing there. Well, mm, trying to warm up, let's call it that. Europe also mixed the UK economy Over there, growing at a near 5% rate in the second quarter. Now, that was below the Bank of England's projections, but it is stronger, of course, than much of the EU. Growth worries are going to intensify, I think, for the remainder of 2021. The International Energy Agency slashing its forecast for oil consumption due to what it called an abrupt drop in demand last month due to COVID concerns. Asia. In the meantime, stock markets there broadly lower. Concerns over that newly announced phase in China's scorching regulatory crackdown, Beijing's hotter hold and a wide range of industries will surely lead to cooler investor interest going forward. It's already taken place and that's where we begin today's Drivers. A five-year crackdown China looks to set to continue tightening its grip on business for years to come, as revealed in a blueprint from the ruling Communist Party leadership. Stephen Zhang is in Beijing with more. Stephen, great to have you with us. We actually had Leila Minna of the China Beige Book on earlier this week, and he said actually no one knows where the regulation's going to go. And he wasn't sure actually that Beijing knew either and actually stepped forward with this blueprint today. And we certainly have a greater sense and it looks to be length Walk us through what we know.
1: Well, Julia, this uh, five-year plan is titled a uh blueprint to build a uh, rule of law government it runs through 2025. Now, like many official Chinese documents, it also lacks specifics, but some sections and wording, I think, uh, reaffirms or seem to reaffirm uh, the worst fear of many investors. For example, the party and government promise uh, quote-unquote actively promote legislation, meaning even more laws and regulations in areas such as national security and uh, education, as well as uh, financial services. It also promises to Intensify uh, law enforcement in food and drugs, and again mentioned uh, education, as well as some of the so-called buzzword industries: artificial intelligence, big data, cloud computing. That these industries will face better governance as well, according to this document. Now, all of this, of course, comes on the heels of some of the most recent and unprecedented government crackdown on uh, some of China's most prominent private private companies, starting late last year, of course, with Alibaba's N Group, and then more recently the right-hailing group uh, Didi. And of course, the, uh, the example most talked about is probably the uh, a private uh, after-school tutoring industry, which was turned from one of the most popular services provided by the private sector to basically a, a legal business almost overnight because of an onslaught by regulators. And uh, as I just mentioned, education is indeed mentioned more than once in this document, Julia.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because we have seen investors spooked by this. We've seen, what, $1 trillion plus wiped off the value of some of these big tech stocks. But every nation, not just China, is struggling with how to regulate, how to deal with some of these companies that have grown incredibly quickly and, and regulation to protect Users to protect consumers has lagged behind. What are those users saying on places like social media, Stephen, in the face of what they're seeing here? Because not all regulation has to be bad. We always talk about China in terms of control, but users of this and users of these products do need to be protected to some degree too. There, there is a balance. What are the users saying?
1: that's right there is a mixed reviews online but also interesting to know the relatively muted market reactions at least in this region to uh, this release of this major document i think a lot of uh, people including investors around the world have uh, accepted or started to accept this new normal under xi jinping and of course according to the government as you said they are doing this to protect the vital interests of the masses and then of course uh, you know not only does this document reaffirm the government's determination to start some of the a, a drastic regulatory moves they have done recently. But also, at least according to some people, it provides some guidance, at least some hints in terms of potential future hotspots. So that could be a, a, positive, a positive thing for uh, for investors. And as you know, uh, some major players have already said they're going to wait uh, to see clarity uh, in this uh, new environment, including SoftBank, for example, a major player in this market with their CEO say he's waiting to wait for a year or two. So uh, I think a lot of people have already responded or least least uh, trying to learn this uh, new normal in this new era under Xi Jinping. Julia?
0: Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. Welcome to the new normal. Whether it's going to be ultimately a negative or a, or a positive thing for users, for investors, whichever way you look at this, welcome to the new normal. Stephen Jang great job. Thank you. Uh, over in Beijing there. OK, let's move on. Hackers with heart. More than half now of the $600 million stolen by hackers from DeFi platform Poly Network, has now been returned. Claire Sebastian joins us with all the details. Claire, wowzers! Didn't I say yesterday five hundred ninety-five million dollars to go? Um, well, a lot less today, and I'm not even going to do the maths. Um, and fascinating, also, the hackers are saying, "Look, we just did this to to make a point. Ultimately, that these things aren't yet secure enough." Talk us through this. Yeah.
2: Yeah, we we know more today, Julia, but there's still a lot of mystery uh, around this. In terms of the amount returned, a a, a tweet about four hours ago from Poly Network confirmed that $342 million uh, worth of these assets has now been returned. That leaves some, I don't know, 260-odd left, depending who you talk to. Uh, So there's still a lot left, but this is a significant development in this, this bizarre story that reveals so much of the sort of good and bad about decentralized finance. The question as to why it's being returned. There's a lot of speculation. There was a lot of talk about whether this was uh, a white hat hacker doing this as a sort of move to reveal this vulnerability for the good of the community. Chainalysis, which is a, a blockchain intelligence uh, company, they, they published some some messages, a sort of Q&A in Ether transaction notes from the hacker, which said that, that he apparently or she takes responsibility to expose the vulnerability before any insider hides it and exploits it, which could suggest. Something in the vein of white hat hacking, but they also said they were doing it for fun and as a challenge. And of course, six hundred million is a, is a lot of money to steal if you're just doing it to sort of expose a vulnerability. And there's another reason that that, that is sort of prevailing among blockchain ex- experts is that the reason why it was returned is because this was now such a high profile case. The internet was alight with analysts trying to figure out where this money was moving. Successfully in a lot of cases, and it left the hacker with, with nowhere to turn, no way to cash out safely. So they. Ended up returning the money. That would suggest that the rest will be returned. But of course, we don't know that for sure yet, Julia.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not a white hat right now. It's sort of a dirty grey. Give back the rest of the money and then we'll talk about the white hat. I tell you what, and I agree with you completely about the challenges of taking so much money and the attention that it drew as a result. It also is going to draw the attention of regulators who obviously look at this sector. They're confused. They're troubled with how best to regulate this without suppressing innovation. You get a $600 million hack and suddenly all eyes are on it and they know they have to take action. And of course, they were watching clearly in the last 24
3: hours.
2: Yeah, I think it was interesting that that Senator Elizabeth Warren chose uh, yesterday to, to publish a letter that was sent to her by the SEC Chairman Gary Gensler uh, in response to, to a question from her about whether the SEC has enough authority to regulate crypto. His consensus on that is overwhelmingly no. He said right now, I believe investors using these platforms are not adequately protected. He said that the SEC is currently using all the authority it has. It's clear where the line is between sort of whether something is a security or not and they can regulate it if it is. But he says that the legislative priority he thinks should center on crypto trading, lending, and DeFi platforms, which is, of course, what we're talking about with the $600 million hack. And, you know, I think it's worth, it's worth mentioning that DeFi platforms, they are mirroring in a lot of cases the, the riskier parts of the traditional financial system, things like lending, trading and derivatives, all of that. And anyone can set up a DeFi platform. Of course, there are a lot of benefits to this decentralized system. But as the CEO of Binance pointed out uh, on Twitter yesterday, there's no guarantees when something goes wrong.
0: No, absolutely not. I have an image of these hackers now as a pirate wearing a grey pirate's hat and they certainly have a black eye as a result of what they did. Time to buy a patch. Give the money back. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. India's main opposition party is accusing Twitter of stifling freedom of expression by blocking 5000 of its accounts. A spokesperson for the Congress Party also alleging that the action came because of pressure on Twitter from the Indian government. Joining us now from New Delhi is Vedika Sood. Vedika, great to have you with us. I think the context here is very important. Twitter as a company, of course, has been battling the government over new laws and not suppressing tweets that the government took offence to. Fast forward today and we do see main opposition party tweets blocked by the company, but it's not that simple. Talk us through this.
4: Absolutely. not that simple, Julia. Great to be with you this morning. Well, very quickly, a few developments that have actually culminated into the standoff between Twitter and the main opposition party, the Congress. Now, in February, uh, the government introduced some strict new information technology guidelines with just one aim in mind, which was to regulate social online content. And for this, they wanted tech giants to also hire people who would actually regulate the content and respond to legal demands to delete tweets. Now, for tech giants, the fear was, along with activists here in India, that this could be giving the Indian government too much discretionary power. And that's exactly what the Congress Party has said today. Now, why has this happened? It's happened because, unfortunately, on 1st of August this year, there was an incident in New Delhi, the alleged gang rape and murder of a nine-year-old. Now, senior Congress leader, Rahul Gandhi, went to meet the parents of this rape victim, and he did put up pictures and visuals of his interaction with them. According to Indian laws, this is in violation because it is said and believed, and it is also prescribed as a law, that you cannot uh, make public images and visuals of uh, an alleged gang rape victim or the family. And because of that, the National Commission for Child's Rights wrote to uh, Twitter asking them to pull down the content put up by Rahul Gandhi. And that's what they did. After due diligence, they claim they did suspend his account. Now, cut to today. That's exactly what's happened with many more accounts belonging to senior Congress leaders and members of the party. Twitter has responded to CNN's question and query on this, stating that it is in violation of their policies and they're trying to safeguard and protect the individual's privacy in this case, because of which they say hundreds of accounts have been temporarily locked. And what they expect these people to do, whose accounts have been locked, is very simple. Delete the tweet or then go ahead and challenge what they've done and uh, go ahead and take some action on their part as well. But that's where it stands. Now, you have Raul Gandhi's sister who's also a top Congress leader coming out today and tweeting to say that, uh, and she's alleged here, that uh, the Twitter uh, company has actually colluded with the Modi government and has also slammed Twitter for going ahead and compromising the democracy and freedom of the country. So that's And this is going to be a huge face-off in the coming days with a lot of people also supporting the Congress Party and some obviously supporting the Modi government. As far as this face-off is concerned, it's freedom of speech versus these regulations as of now, Julia.
0: Yeah, it's a confluence of so many factors. A a tragic loss of life and crime. The challenge between a company and the government itself, the opposition party trying to fight for something and now the Twitter uh, handles being blocked, um, we'll continue to draw light on this because it does raise questions I think about the activities of a government, of an individual business operating, a foreign business operating in India too, and of course the, the tragic events of, of what happened to that, that young child. Vedika, thank you for explaining what's going on there, Vedika Sood, thank you for joining us from New Delhi there. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. Taliban fighters in Afghanistan have captured the strategic city of Ghazni. It's the 10th provincial capital this week that the group claims to have seized. With it, the Taliban now control key locations to the north and south of Kabul, leaving the city increasingly isolated. CNN's Nick Payton-Walsh joins us now with more. Nick, good to have you with us. You were describing the tragic events, I think, of what we've seen and what we've seen happen so quickly over there in, in Afghanistan. Now U.S. intelligence suggests that the government could be under threat in months, a few months What more do we know?
5: Well, I mean, that the capital could in fact be encircled in as little as 30 days. If you bring that map up again, uh, you can see essentially uh, what you earlier saw under the words Sari Pool is roughly where Kabul lies. And you can see around there how perilous it's getting for the capital. Major cities increasingly in Taliban hands. And an interesting side story coming out of how Ghazni came to fall. It's been under pressure for a number of days. But it appears that essentially the local governor surrendered to the Taliban and he's subsequently been arrested by Afghan security forces for that. But it shows you to some degree how a lot of these cities must be feeling isolated, cut off from resupply and how of course it shows how exceptionally hard the job is for the limited number of very effective Afghan security forces, essentially their commandos, to go around the country putting out all these different fires. Now there's a lot of discussion and there's been some reshuffling within the higher ranks of the Afghan military today as to whether or not the Afghan government's strategy has been uh, sensible. They seem to have tried to Hold as much territory as possible rather than allocate places they knew they could defend. It's sort of history now, frankly, because we've seen ten cities fall in under a week. Two of them, major Kunduz and Ghazni. Kandahar, the second biggest city in Afghanistan, is looking pretty perilous too. After a prison break there yesterday, seems to have got about a thousand prisoners out of, uh, of jail there. So we'll see how that pans out. But it's a, it's a bit of a, a, a leap to start discussing how quickly Kabul could be encircled. But unfortunately all sort of reasonable assessments of timetables have fallen apart since we've seen this extraordinary rush in the last 6 days but it is interesting at this stage to see the US government's response they're still looking for diplomacy their chief negotiator in doha and qatar they're tweeting about how the taliban should be releasing government officials and soldiers who they've captured and accusing them of atrocities uh, and they are putting out, it seems, bleak assessments of how bad things are getting. Extraordinary after 20 years of military application there to see their presence reduced to this. Extraordinary and heartbreaking. Um,
0: Nick, incredibly quickly, I guess the conversation about the potential fall of Kabul is important if you're the Afghan government desperately searching for some kind of strategy to turn the tide here. Is there anything that you can see with all your experience over the past several years reporting on this and and being there that, that you see as a a potential strategy other than outside help?
5: I mean obviously Kabul is vital. I wasn't suggesting that it's, I was just wondering quite how fast we'll get to that no, moment where it is indeed encircled because once the north the other cities of mazar up there are in taliban hands they can begin to concentrate possibly on the capital the strategy for that well if the u.s was to apply extensive air power they could certainly keep the taliban out of there they could possibly even assist uh, the afghan forces in pushing them out of other cities but it It's been seen over the past days that the long-heralded Afghan army that the US always talks about being able to handle its own security, and many wondered quite where it was, isn't big enough or effective enough to do the job for the whole country. So essentially the strategy now for the government has to be we're going to hold this place and this place and essentially see how long they can tough that out. But for now, it appears the fires keep emerging in new places and they're simply unable to race them fast enough. Julia?
0: Yeah, it feels like an insurmountable task. Nick, great to have you. Thank you. Nick Payton Walsh there. All right, we're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Volvo is deploying its Class 8 electric trucks to the East Coast of America for the first time, delivering five to Manhattan beer distributors in New York as part of its commitment to sustainability. The truck's batteries can be charged in 70 minutes and have a range of up to 150 miles. Joining us now from New York is the president of Volvo Trucks North America, Peter Veerhoover. Peter, fantastic to have you on the show. And I can see the truck behind you, actually. So you're going to have to talk me through the details. But just explain the benefits that this truck brings to this organisation versus the traditional trucks that we see every day on the roads.
6: Yeah. Good. Uh, hi, Julia, and thank you very much for having uh, having me uh, on your on your show. Uh, it's a very exciting day. This is indeed uh, the official handoff of the first out of five uh, electric trucks for for Manhattan Beer, um, and that's that's good news because this electric truck will help us to uh, execute on our sustainability agenda, it's Volvo's sustainability agenda, but also Manhattan beer su- sustainability agenda. This truck has a zero tailpipe emission. That means there is no greenhouse gases. Uh, there is uh, an immediate contribution to clean air, and there is an enormous noise reduction. So if these trucks drive around in the five boroughs to deliver uh, their beer, uh, the quality of life of the people in the urban streets will improve dramatically.
0: Yeah, you see, this is an important point. And also is the the delivery distance that you're going, because I think one of the big criticisms and questions of electric trucks is, hang on a second, a lot of these trucks are used to go all over the country. They're long haul vehicles. And if you're only able to go 150 miles, And you also have to charge it at that point and you need the infrastructure in order to be able to do that how useful are they peter are you saying that as as great as these are they are sort of inner city and close by delivery vehicles really julia we need
6: to we need to get started somewhere right there is an enormous amount of trucks on the road and there is local (laughs) distribution and regional distribution and long haul and we don't necessarily everybody if you think about the truck, you think about the long haul truck but there's an enormous amount of trucks Class A trucks, by the way, that do local and regional distribution. Let's look at what happens in ports, right? The transport of containers is not that long. Uh, let's look at the distribution of food and pickups, etc. The truck that you see behind us here uh, will drive less than 150 miles a day, but will do an enormous amount of deliveries. And if we have these trucks now in the city, if we can accelerate the introduction of electric trucks, again, we will dramatically improve uh, the impact on the climate, but also we will dramatically improve uh, the quality of life uh, in, in in cities like like New York City. So I think it is important to get started, and that's what we have done within Volvo Trucks. We have decided to go out uh, 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 with with the, with the electric offering right now. Even though we are at two 150 miles, there is plenty, plenty of applications to start going deliver on our sustainability agendas tackle the climate uh, challenges that we have. And then going forward, we will go to longer-haul distribution. Volvo Trucks has now the battery electric vehicle. It's live, we can sell it, we can build it. We build it here in the US, by the way, and it is operational, it's not a pilot. Later on, later on in the decade, we will come with other applications like fuel cell electric, and then you go to long-haul. But we need to get started somewhere, and to my opinion, to go in urban streets and urbanized areas is where we need to get started.
0: Yeah, you are preaching to the choir, my friend, because I live in New York City and I would love cleaner <laughs> oh. air, quite frankly, and I agree with you. We have to start somewhere. Um, what's yeah. the cost comparison, Peter, of this, again, relative to the competition, particularly if we s- stick with just inner city or near city deliveries. How much cheaper is it? Because President Biden announced his commitment to have all or at least up to half, we hope, of new cars by 2030 um, with zero emissions. So you're talking about something that fits very much with that mandate. But clearly you can tell me better perhaps what more support businesses need, consumers need to be encouraged to buy these kind of vehicles, whether it's a car or whether it's a truck in this case.
6: Well, the, the 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 switch from 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 fossil-based fuel to electric and zero tailpipe emission vehicles like this VNR electric behind me uh, is is a little bit more complicated than just building the truck. You need you need a couple of elements in place. For the moment, electric vehicles are more expensive than fossil-based vehicles, be that diesel, be that clean diesel, be that CNG. So we need. Uh, uh, state and federal uh, agencies to help us with incentive programs which by the way you see now happening here in the city of new york and you see also that for instance in the state of california so we need some incentive programs in order to get the ball rolling if i may say it like that next to that then we need charging infrastructure in the case of manhattan beer manhattan beer has their own charging facilities here on site that is enough because they can run the whole day on one charge but we need to look at charging uh, infrastructure and the utility companies need to play their role, which they are doing by the way in order to provide the necessary uh, permits and and, and and capacity for this uh, for this charging so there, there's a couple of elements that we need uh, in place in order to make the switch to uh, towards electric vehicles. maybe one last thing that I would like to uh, to mention on this as well and that's maybe then the fourth next to charging next to incentives next to the truck we also need a service network and we're very happy Then uh, here, right around the corner from Manhattan Beer, we have our truck dealership, Malaya, uh, who is uh, the first uh, certified electric vehicle dealer on the East Coast. We have certified electric vehicle dealers on the West Coast already. Malaya is now the first one here. They are able now to help our customers and in a consultative approach to say, okay, how do I introduce electric vehicles? Which routes uh, make sense? How do I do work with route optimization? But also later on, how do I service the vehicle? And we right. service the vehicles with with, with gold contracts. Uh, so there's a couple of elements that need to be in place. But again, here in this case today, it worked. And we have, we're have we going to put the first five on the
0: road on the East Coast. Cleaner beer deliveries here in New York. That's what we like to hear. Peter, <laughs> great to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. And uh, fascinating to chat to you today. Peter Volhoover, the president of Volvo Trucks at North America. Great to speak to you, sir. Thank, Thank- you. Thanks very much, Julia. Thanks OK, much. the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And it's a, let's call it a summary start, a.k.a. people are still on the beach, to the U.S. trading day after a record-breaking close Wednesday. New data, prices, prices data, at the wholesale level, jumping almost 8% year over year last month. But new jobless claims have fallen for the third straight week. The Fed, of course, wanting to see continued improvement in employment data before it decides to taper stimulus. No taperings of COVID mandates. Meanwhile, in corporate America, the New York Stock Exchange joining a long list of firms requiring employees and guests to be vaccinated. Beginning next month, only people who've received two vaccine doses will be allowed onto the trading floor. In the meantime, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is expected to authorize a third dose of the Moderna or Pfizer COVID vaccine for people with weakened immune systems. Moderna has said a third shot will likely be necessary to keep us as safe as possible through the winter. And joining us now, co-founder and chairman of Moderna, Nubar Afeyan. He's also the founder and CEO of Flagship Pioneering. Nubar, great to have you with us on the show as always. Um, there's much to discuss, I know, but I do want to start with your research and findings from Moderna on the efficacy of a third dose and why it's necessary, perhaps heading into the uh, the fall too.
7: Uh, Julia, thanks for having me back. Um, indeed, we've been uh, releasing data as we get them uh, concerning the efficacy of a third booster shot and what is showing us is an elevation of antibody levels that is quite substantial even compared to the second booster and and it's been shown through many many studies that the uh, level of antibodies are the first line and the best line of protection we have against getting infected altogether uh, once we get infected, of course, vaccinated people have an advantage over those who are unvaccinated as to the mildness of the of the disease, but certainly to be able to protect against infection. And as we enter into a phase where uh, variants are beginning to dominate that are somewhat more infective and transmissible, we think that we need to consider elevating, certainly for highly vulnerable people, the level of antibody level so we can give maximum protection.
0: The key there, I think, was what you said about highly vulnerable people. I mean, the World Health Organization has raised serious reservations about the prospect of giving some people in the world, certain parts of the world, let's be clear, a third vaccine dose, when so many others in other parts of the world, in poorer nations in particular, haven't even had one dose yet. I know it's a difficult question. It's sort of moral. It's also scientific. But Neewa, what do you think of that? Is it safer scientifically to vaccinate as many people as possible with even just one dose versus giving others and a smaller proportion three? How do you think about it as a, as a company at Moderna?
7: Well, Julia, I think that what we need to do is do both. And oh. I think that the way the issue is always framed is that we're either going to do one or the other. But actually what is missed is that we are, as are others, ramping up our production very rapidly to be able to produce multiple, in our case, 3 billion doses next year. And, and in so doing, we believe we'll be able to handle both demands Uh, And we see our colleagues in the industry doing the same so that in aggregate, I think if we can work in a coordinated way to get adequate supplies to wherever they're needed to vaccinate folks, as well as boost the the protection, I think that can be done. I think this is not a a conflict we need to create as opposed to just simply ramp up so we can tailor to or or, or handle the needs of, of all who are being impacted by this.
0: Yeah, you raise a great point that actually we shouldn't have to choose. The hope is that we can get vaccines to parts of the world that need them, and be able to provide a third dose to those who need it too. Um, sure. In the interim, and I think this is an important question too, just a question about the the durability of the efficacy that you've seen with your vaccine as as time goes on. What can you tell us about your data on that? Because for many people that are lucky enough even to have two doses, what do they need to understand as we as we head into the winter about the protection that? It continues to provide.
7: Well, you know, from from the early days, what we have set out to do is to develop and offer the highest degree of protection available to the largest number of people for the longest possible amount of time safely. And we have said this over and over again. The part we couldn't show until recently is the over a long period of time, because it turns out that's one thing you can't show six months durability without waiting six months. Well, we did wait six months, and the data that we announced last week seems to indicate that at least in the mRNA-1273 Moderna vaccine, we're seeing relatively little diminution in protection over the six months. We've gone from 94 to 93%. There have been other reports with other vaccines, some mRNA, some not, that have shown a larger drop-off. And of course, people are, scientists, are beginning to study why that might be. I know in our case, The dose that we've used, the 100 microgram dose, was designed to give maximal durability and protection, and it seems to be doing that. Likewise, as we look at the effect of delta versus alpha, the original strain, we're also seeing higher levels of protection there. Again, we think due to the the high dose that we've used, uh, our technology allowed us to safely deliver these kinds of high doses, and against an unknown enemy, an unknown pathogen, as in the uh, a a SARS CoV 2 virus, we thought that's the way to go, and it's beginning to show some results that are differentiated.
0: OK, um, I also want to talk about a, a hot topic here in the United States, but I think everywhere around the world where children under the ages of 12 are heading back to school in the coming weeks. I appreciate your only phase two in this, so we have to qualify that very carefully. But I wondered if you could share anything about even just the early stages of what you're seeing with trials of those between six months and, and 12 years old. Are you able to give us anything?
7: Um, We we can't obviously give uh, uh, definitive results of protection until we do the trials that are ongoing right now. But but what I can tell you is that we are quite uh, 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 confident that these trials will be completed as quickly as we can, potentially this fall, such that we have the data to base a decision on. At the end of the day, your listeners should realize that the choice is between being vulnerable to a serious infection and being protected from that infection, but then... Uh, making sure we understand just how safe the vaccine is to the largest number of young, uh, young subjects in this case as we're trying it. So it's really a question of trading off risk versus risk. There's no alternative to this risk. We're going to take one kind of risk. We think that the more we learn about the infection, the more the infections affecting young folks, the more we're going to realize that a safe vaccine will be important. And we think we're on our way to developing that, hopefully with data to support that claim coming this fall.
0: Yeah, we'll look forward to that. Um, Finally, your work is vast. I know we spent a lot of time talking about COVID, but I know you're also looking at utilising the mRNA platform to tackle flu as well in the future, which is something that up until this point, at least, we talked about far more than anything else. Obviously, it was overtaken by COVID. Can you tell us anything about the work there?
7: Broadly, we are working on a number of respiratory vaccines, flu being one of them, RSV, uh, and we expect over time this mRNA platform to offer protection against multiple respiratory threats on a on, on a seasonal basis, potentially. Uh, and then more broadly, mRNA is being used across 24 different drug and vaccine programs in our pipeline. And of course, what's happened due to the pandemic is a an acceleration and a ramp up of the production capability sufficient to be able to supply any number of of effective products coming out of this platform that Moderna pioneered. So, so we're actually quite encouraged by the fact that the science seems to be scalable, seems to be broadly applicable, and we just have to do the work needed to show the regulators that this approach could offer some quite ad- uh, advantaged uh, new tools over what's been available in the past.
0: Yeah, I mean, the beauty as well of this platform, and we're seeing it in practice, too. I believe you've signed an agreement with the Canadian government to be able to manufacture vaccines over in Canada as well. I I just wanted to ask, does that involve sharing the patent of what you've created for the COVID vaccine, too? And perhaps, and are you talking to other governments at, at Moderna to perhaps do the same? Obviously, again, it's something that would be very, very useful in continents like Africa, for example. What can you tell us?
7: Well, you know, Moderna, as the innovator in this space, uh, certainly has a very broad patent estate, and it's using it for the benefit of uh, patients everywhere and subjects for vaccines everywhere. And through us, that technology will be available anywhere we forge partnerships and set up plants and production capabilities and even research capabilities. So Canada was the first place that we announced setting up a production facility that Moderna will establish and operate, but it obviously will be a form of protection in future pandemics. We are having discussions with a few other countries. We, w- we don't have anything to announce yet. That includes consideration in Africa and elsewhere. I think that the distinction between patents and the production know-how and technology mm. is an important one because these patents have been publicly available for many years. People have read them. Many other mRNA uh, uh, product- uh, producers have had access to this technology. Uh, so it's not a question of just patents, it's really a question of being able to use the know-how and we very much are interested in making sure we strategically deploy this in different places in the world. We operate as a global company, albeit a young one, and we continue to want to wanna do that uh, as in as many ways as we can.
0: Yeah, one, uh, one scientist said to me, if it were just about um, handing over a recipe, then they'd be a master chef. And they're not. It's simply not that simple. Um, Nubar, I cannot wait until we get through the pandemic and we can talk about what else you have going on, because you're a very interesting man and you have a lot of things going on. And I promise we will get there. But um, I appreciate your insights on what's going on at Moderna specifically today. Thank you, Nubar Fine, co-founder Thanks. and chairman of Moderna. Thank you. Okay, a blockchain-based app to help the unbanked. Cambodia's central bank looks to wean the economy of the US dollar with a high-tech solution. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Cambodia, just one of the Southeast Asian countries currently challenged by the Delta variant after successfully containing the coronavirus for months. The pandemic, of course, has presented a unique test in a country where more than 70% of the population remain unbanked. Riding the digitization wave that we've seen in other parts of the world, in October, The National Bank of Cambodia launched a blockchain-based payment system, Bacong. And just this week, the bank has struck a partnership with Malaysia's Maybank to facilitate payments between the two nations. Saree Chir is Assistant Governor and Director General of the Central Bank at the National Bank of Cambodia. And she joins us now from the capital, Phnom Penh. Saray, fantastic to have you on the show. Fantastic to talk to you about this. Um, Just talk to me about what you are hoping to achieve with its launch.
3: Well, first of all, thank you, Julia, for having me. Um, With the uh, Bacon that we launched in uh, October 2020, um, there are three main uh, important goals with this application. One is interoperability, living in a country where we have a very fragmented uh, banking system where we've got the uh, payment service providers and the banks are not who are not talking with each other. And you know, um, by just making an analogy, it's like using a different uh, mobile service provider, and you can't call to each other. And so, basically, we want to aim to create this interoperability and make payment easy. Uh, second is also to uh, for financial inclusion. Uh, we have as you mentioned about thirty percent of our population not having a bank account and in fact to open a bank account it's it's a bit complicated for people in the rural area because of the kyc requirement uh, is 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 more demanding um, and so opening a, a wallet account because we implement a TKYC, uh, it's much easier for them to, to open. And the third is also uh, to uh, encourage the use of local currency. And now this is an important point to uh, to emphasize because um, Bacon in itself would not alone will not be able to uh, encourage the local currency or take away the US dollar from the economy. Uh, it is one of the measures that has been implemented by the central bank uh, together with the government. Uh, the important, three important uh, uh, prerequisite is a sound macro fundamental, which is one is a stable uh, exchange rate, a stable inflation rate, and third is Uh, a a positive economic outlook and create the confidence in the local currency. Uh, So definitely Bà would make uh, the use of local currency easier uh, for the people. Oh, there's so much in there. Um, I'm
0: furiously trying to think about where I go first. Um, So to your point, and we mentioned it, a huge proportion of the country around three quarters unbanked, but you do have high mobile penetration. So people can just access this. A mobile wallet can make payments via a phone app. And we were just showing people actually using it, which is why it's so easy. I believe all you need to use this is government ID and a, a mobile phone number. And that's how you get access. Far easier, to your point, than than trying to get access to a bank account, for example.
3: Yes, uh, exactly. And in fact, during the uh, COVID uh, social distancing measure, and thanks God, we've been working on this project uh, way before and then when this uh, pandemic hit, it's uh, uh, silver lining of, of the whole situation uh, is that we, we uh, the, the uh, digital adoption is, is much, the pace of it is much faster. Um, so we have simplified the KYC measure. So for now, if you just have a phone number, you can register a wallet and transact within a very small amount, I think about 500 US dollars. And if you want to add the the the, the, the value of your transactions on a daily basis, then you have to take a photo of your ID. And, um, and then if you want to increase it further, you have to actually be present at uh, a bank branch. But at the moment, uh, because it's targeting retail, uh, just having a phone number on an ID uh, and take a selfie of yourself uh, will be enough to allow you to make transaction uh, um, contactless.
0: Yeah, this is fascinating. And around, I believe, 5.9 million people have already accessed it. One of the other things that I think is quite fascinating about this, because you mentioned, you know, this is about trying to encourage trust, confidence in the domestic currency when, again, the vast proportion of financial transactions are paid with the US dollar. So it's about just rebuilding or building up the strength of the currency of the the nation too, but it's remittance flows. I I, I read that around 1.2 million people sent $2.8 billion home from regional nations around it back in in 2019. So if you can facilitate payments from countries like Malaysia, for example, and I use that one specifically for people to send remittances back to Cambodia with more efficiently, with lower cost, then this is vital as well. And I believe you literally in the last 24 hours agreed a deal on that with, with Malaysia. What can you tell us?
3: Well, I mean, the basic idea of allowing this cross-border uh, come from a very personal experience where um, my my uh, youngest son was adopted um, from a woman who was raped and she was a migrant worker. Um, and um, she sent money home and the money was used... Uh, misused uh, to a father who was alcoholic or be the mother and a brother who was a drug addict. And so the idea with this cross-border, in my mind, I was thinking about other migrant workers, particularly women uh, who work in Malaysia, mostly as domestic workers, and how can we help them send money easily home? Uh, Cheap uh, is, is important, convenient is also important, but also important is that uh, she will be able to send money directly to the school or directly to the hospital rather than sending all at once to one person and this person risk of mismanaging uh, the money. And so this is very empowering for women or for, for migrant workers in general. Um, so we're very, uh, very pleased with this launch with Malaysia and we hope to start seeing transactions flowing. in. And already we were informed by our uh, embassy in Malaysia that they're bombarded with questions on how it is done.
0: You know, hearing your personal story, this is so important because financial inclusion means so many different things um, and empowers so many people in different ways, which I think is very important. Um, Final point, how do you see this growing? I mean, I mentioned you've seen 5.9 million people access it already. Just give us a sense of the transactions that you're already seeing and how quickly you think you can scale this up.
3: So, um, in terms of uh, digital payment alone within this uh, uh, pandemic, uh, from the uh, end of 2019 to end of 2020, we've seen an increase of 350% in terms of volume, and in terms of value, we see an increase of uh, 200%, uh, and it reached to about 68 billion dollars uh, flowing through this electronic payment. This is. Uh, a big amount, given you know the country GDP of 25 billion. Um, in terms of Bakong itself, the transactions start growing. Uh, at the moment, uh, we have about uh, 1.5 million transactions uh, in the uh, the BACON uh, ecosystem, uh, with a value of about 500 billion uh, US dollars. So um, it, it is growing quite rapidly, given that you know last uh, quarter. Uh, we only had about uh, 100,000 of wallet users. And as of uh, quarter two, which is three months ago, uh, within three months, we see a double number. And now we reach about uh, 200,000 users. So uh, we hope uh, for it to increase further. And most importantly, we also hope that we could cooperate with other countries as well, to promote this uh, cross-border transaction for our tourists and migrant workers.
0: Yeah, it, this is pioneering innovation. Come back soon because there's a whole nother conversation about diversification in the US dollar. And I know you and I have talked offline about this and I know you have fascinating thoughts. So we shall reconvene on this conversation. Thank you for joining us today. sarichia Chia, there from her. the National Bank of Cambodia. Thank you. We're back after this. JetBlue greenlighting its first ever transatlantic route between New York and London, despite pandemic travel restrictions. The United States has not yet opened its borders to UK and European travellers. And CEO Robin Hayes says it's time for the United States to change that.
7: I'm frustrated about that because I think the US government should take a, a risk-based approach to travel. I mean, uh, COVID infection rates in Europe are lower than many other countries in the world where you can fly from today but, but look as a US airline we always knew most of our sales were going to be out of the US so the opening of the UK by the UK government is great news
0: and you can see Richard Quest's entire report on JetBlue's new transatlantic service later today on Questmead's means business with me because I'll be hosting so I'll see you later that's it for the show stay safe connect the world with Becky Anderson is next